Imagine sitting in the recliner, sipping lemonade, when suddenly you hear a knock at the door. You peek through the blinds, and there on your front porch is standing Ed McMahon. He's holding a four-foot-by-six-foot check from the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. It's written for the amount of $10 million, and it's made payable to you. You realize, all of a sudden, you've hit the jackpot. You have found the pot of gold. You have hit the mother load. You have suddenly become a multimillionaire. In Ephesians... Paul plays the role of a spiritual Ed McMahon. He knocks on the door of our hearts with some exciting news. In Christ, we have struck it rich. Paul begins Ephesians showing off our spiritual portfolio. Who we are, what we have in Christ Jesus. He wants us to see ourselves seated. That means positioned in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6 says that God has made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. After we learn to sit, though, the next step is to walk. Our conduct comes next. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul encourages us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And then once we learn to walk, then we can stand and fight against the enemy And that's why Paul tells us in chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But notice the sequence. We'll discover it in this book. We've got to sit in Christ, see ourselves in Christ. Then we can walk worthy of that calling. And then after we've learned to walk, we can stand against the devil. There's a sequence. You can't walk until you learn to sit. And you can't stand until you've learned to walk. Here's the Christian life in a nutshell. The book of Ephesians. Sit, walk, stand. There are other ways to summarize the book. It's the believer's wealth, walk, and warfare. Ephesians is our calling, our conduct, and our conflict. Here's my favorite outline. Chapters 1 through 3 describe our spiritual habitat. Who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Chapters 4 and 5 teach us to function in this world as heaven's diplomat. And then in chapter 6, we get ready for spiritual combat. Habitat, diplomat, and combat. The book of Ephesians is Paul's letter to a group of believers on the shores of the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor. But it's a unique letter in that its recipients have two addresses. Notice in the first few verses, Paul addresses this letter to both those who are in Ephesus and those who are in Christ. Physically, they were living in Ephesus, but spiritually, they were in Christ. They had two locations they were living in simultaneously. If Paul were writing to us today, he would write to the saints who are in Atlanta and faithful in Christ Jesus. Physically, we're in Atlanta. Spiritually, though, we are in Christ. Every believer has those two locations. With any physical locale, there are natural advantages that accompany the surroundings. There are perks and privileges that cost you nothing that just come with the turf. The Christians in Ephesus could visit the beach. They could eat fresh seafood. Here in Atlanta, we can play in the fountains at Centennial Park. We can cheer for the Braves. It costs you nothing. It just comes with the territory. 
Atlanta and Ephesus are both nice places, but both locations have their shortcomings. Not so, though, with our spiritual location. Verse 3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Hey, in Christ is the in place. In Christ, you have at your disposal every spiritual blessing. There's nothing missing. There's nothing that you need, you don't possess. You need to know. You need to grasp. You need to see that in Christ Jesus, you are rich. You have been blessed. God has given you abundance. In the movie, Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner, he hears this mysterious voice, Build it, and they will come. And so he builds a baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield. Players from yesteryear suddenly appear and they play baseball on his field. It turns out that his field of dreams butts up to another dimension. Another world exists just beyond the outfield. In a sense, this is what Paul is saying to us. Our physical life butts up against another world. There is a spiritual realm that lies parallel to our physical world. And through faith, life and strength and joy and virtue and peace flow to us through the Spirit of God. Yes, you are in Atlanta, but you are likewise simultaneously in Christ. Build it. Build a strong identity in Christ and the blessings will come. The key to a victorious Christian life is to realize who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Imagine a treasure chest. Paul pops it open and he begins to sort of rake his fingers through the gold doubloons. This is what he begins to do with our riches in Christ. In verses 3 through 14, he begins to enumerate a few of our many blessings. Verses 4 and 5 In Christ, God has chosen us, and He has predestined us to adoption as sons. You know, my dad didn't get to browse through the maternity ward to pick out the baby he liked best. No, when I was born, they laid me in his arms, and they told him he was stuck. He had no choice. And yet he loves me. Here's an amazing thing. God did have a choice, and yet he still chose you. He loves you too. And God chose us before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us. It reminds me of the old lady who overheard a couple of people debating this doctrine of predestination. When asked what she thought about it, she responded, Ah, I've settled that a long time ago. For if God had not chosen me before I was born, I'm sure he would have seen nothing in me to have chosen me afterwards. I believe that we choose God and... God chooses us. How those two points reconcile beats me. I have no idea. But it's clear to me that Scripture teaches both. From my viewpoint, from my perspective, I have to choose. But once I do, I realize that God chose me first. Someone once suggested that when we get to heaven, we'll see written on the outside of the gate, whosoever will may come. But then we'll walk through the gate and we'll turn around and we'll see written on the backside, chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 6 tells us that we've been accepted in the Beloved. It's not what we've done or how much or who we are. It's who we know that gains God's acceptance. Do you know Christ Jesus? That's why it's so important to know Him. 
For in Him, God accepts us as is. We come just as we are. He takes us right where we're at in Christ. Verse 7 says, We have redemption through His blood. The blood of Jesus has paid off our debt of sin, has purchased our freedom. Jesus has redeemed or reclaimed our lives. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that in Christ, we've become part of a grand purpose. Through the ages of time, God has been gathering together in one all things in Christ Jesus. If you want your life to matter for all eternity, make sure that you're in Christ. Verse 11 says that all who are in Christ have an inheritance. Now what that inheritance includes, we can never grasp. One day we'll experience it though. One day when Jesus returns, when we're ushered into heaven, we'll receive that glorious inheritance. But what about in the meantime? There are also some immediate blessings that we can experience. Verse 13 reminds us that when we first trusted in Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit's presence, His power in my life, is the Father's mark of ownership on me. The Holy Spirit is the proof of purchase seal, that we belong to God, that we're His, His possession. The Spirit is also, we're told, the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, He's the immediate down payment on all our future blessings. The Spirit, you might say, is our foretaste of eternity. Whenever dinner at my house runs a little late, Kathy will give the kids a snack. She calls it a T.O. It stands for a tide over. Just sort of tides you over till dinner time. It takes a little of the edge off of the hunger. You see, the Spirit is our T.O. He's our tide over. The blessings we'll experience one day in heaven, we can know to a lesser degree right now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's our foretaste. He's the down payment on this wonderful inheritance. And remember, these blessings come to us, not as a result of our performance, but our position. Our blessings in Christ are not earned by good works or religious rituals. They are benefits of membership. If you're in Christ... These blessings come with the turf. It reminds me of the art dealer who had a son that he loved very, very much. When the boy died, the disheartened dad also fell sick and followed soon after. A large crowd gathered for the auction of this man's enormous art collection. According to the father's wishes, the first peace auction that day was a portrait of his son. The painting was worth very little and the bid was for only a few dollars. As a matter of fact, it was offered by a family friend who basically was having pity on the son. But with that one purchase, the auctioneer suddenly closed down the whole auction. And he awarded the entire collection to the man who had purchased the son's portrait. As it turns out, the collector wanted all his wealth to go to the person who had loved his son. And that's true with God's blessings. That's why God's blessings are given to those who are in Christ. To receive God's wealth, you have to love His Son. Chapter 1 closes with a prayer. Verse 17 mentions the spirit of wisdom. Verse 18 speaks of the eyes of our understanding. Both are interesting phrases. And they seem to me to go beyond knowledge. They speak of experience, the spirit of wisdom. The eyes of understanding. You know, we can read God's Word in black and white, but we'll never experience it. 
Many people, that's true. They read it, but they don't know it personally. God wants us to not only know these truths, but to taste them, to experience them, to realize them in our lives. Isaac Newton saw an apple fall from a tree, and from that deduced the law of gravity. James watched watched steam rise from a boiling kettle, and in turn invented the steam engine. I've seen apples fall, and I've seen steam rise, and I've never grasped that kind of significance. That's what happens to so many people when they read the Word. They read it, but they don't grasp it. Paul wants us to grasp, to comprehend, to fully appreciate and experience our blessings in Christ. He mentions three, the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of His power toward us. He wants us to realize those three blessings in a way that impacts us both powerfully and personally. The hope of my calling to realize who I am in Christ, what that means. Man, that should free me from any earthly ambition. Why would I chase after the things of the world when I possess so much in Christ? Jesus here calls me His inheritance. Yes, it's true that He gives me an inheritance, but I am His inheritance. That blows my mind. Do you realize that in heaven, you are going to be Jesus' reward? You're looking forward to get to heaven, but even more so, He's looking forward to having you there. That gives my life incredible significance. That proves to me that I am truly loved. And then to experience the greatness of His power. Oh boy, that should certainly make me stronger. Guys, don't let your blessings in Christ go to waste. Possess your possessions. Pray that the Father will open the eyes of your understanding, will give you the spirit of wisdom, who will help you grasp the reality of your riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 recounts a rags-to-riches story. And the main character is you. Before you came to Christ, you had a problem. It was really worse than you thought. You weren't just maladjusted. You weren't just immature. Your problem wasn't just that you were a little dysfunctional or even sick. It was far worse. Before you came to Jesus, you were dead. You were dead as a doorknob. Spiritually, you were separated from the life of God. According to verse 3, we were born that way. We were all spiritual stillborns. We were sinners by nature and separated from God from the day we were born. We were in bondage to sin as a result. And Satan had his way with us. He was free to manipulate us. It's a sad story until you read verse 4. Here's the ray of light. But God... Hey, we would still be dead in our sin if God hadn't butted in and crashed the party. I love the rest of verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. You know, it's so wonderful. God is rich in what I need most. He has more than enough mercy. It's been said, unlike other kings, the throne of God is made of mercy, not marble. Aren't we glad? Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God performed a divine transplant. He placed His Holy Spirit in my hollow spirit. God sparked new life in me. I became alive to God, rescued from death to life, from lust to love, 
From death to a seat in heavenly places. How's that for a rags to riches story? Here's a top ten list. Here are the top ten reasons to look forward to heaven. Top ten reasons to look forward to heaven. Number ten, you can begin the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art here. (laughs) Number nine, you can get the answer to the question why. Number eight, touched by an angel is always on television. Number seven, soul music for eternity. Number six, real golden arches. Number five, a great view. Number four, no pain, no gain becomes no pain, no pain. (laughs) Number three, you get to see how the real angels play baseball. Number two, mansions with no mortgages. And then number one, food is fat-free yet tastes great. But verse 7 tells us exactly what we'll be doing in heaven. We're told that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what that says to me? It will take all of eternity for God to show us all the ways that He loves us. That's what you'll be doing in heaven. Verses 8 and 9 explain that all the credit for this rags to riches story goes to grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Hey, grace is love that's on the house. And it's grace that moves the hand of God. If it was something we could earn, then we could boast. But God's favor is always a gift. The one thing you'll never find in heaven is somebody bragging. Guys, we are the product of God's work, not our works. Verse 10 tells us, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word translated workmanship is the word poema, from which we get our English word poem. In other words, we are God's poetry. We are God's work of art. We are the canvas through which He expresses Himself. Good works don't make me fit for God. It's God who makes me fit for good works. In Paul's day, the church consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, though, tried to keep the law, whereas the Gentiles didn't really care. And compliance to the law was the wedge that kept the two groups apart. But according to verse 15, Jesus has broken down this wall of division. Instead of Jew and Gentile, Jesus has created now one new man, one new race of people. You understand, we're not Americans. We're not Republicans or Democrats. If you're in Christ, you are now a part of one new category. You're a new race of people. You're a new man. You are in Christ Jesus. Humanity is no longer divided along the lines of Jew and Gentile, or black and white, or rich and poor, or young or old. Today, the only distinction that matters is whether you're in Christ or without Christ. Through Jesus, we're not only reconciled to God, we have been reconciled to our fellow man. The love of Jesus is not just a spiritual force, it's a potent social force as well. The love we've received transcends human differences It gives feuding people a stronger reason to stay together than to remain apart. 
verses 19 through 22 teach us that as Christians, we are citizens now of the same nation. We are members of the same family. We are bricks in the same building. We are a holy temple. Together, you and I are a place of witness and worship. We are God's dwelling place on the earth. Think of it. We, this assembly tonight, is the place where God likes to hang out. Can you imagine? Ephesians 3 describes God as a spiritual entrepreneur. He's not content to market grace to just the Jews. God wants to branch out. God wants to dispense His grace to the Gentiles as well. And in verses 2 through 7, Paul explains how God gave to him the first franchise. Did you know that every four hours, somewhere in the world, McDonald's opens a new hamburger joint? Every four hours. Likewise, God wants to open new outlets of grace. He wants to put them in new places. And He wants you and I to get in on a franchise. He wants us to be dispensers of His grace. God wants to give you a franchise of grace at your school, in your workplace, on your team, in your neighborhood. In in verse 4, Paul speaks of the gospel as a mystery. You know, when we use the word mystery, we think of a suspenseful story. You know, a search for the smoking gun. We think of a whodunit. When we think of a mystery, we think of a phenomenon with no explanation or a puzzle that can't be solved. But to the contrary, a biblical mystery may be a simple, very easily understood truth. And yet God keeps it a secret for a time. It would have never been considered by the mind of man had it not been revealed to us by the word of God. A biblical mystery, in essence, is a sacred secret. And throughout the Old Testament, the gospel of grace was that mystery. In fact, in verse 8, Paul refers to our unsearchable riches in Christ. God's riches were also a mystery. All that He would give us, all He would do for us in Christ was a mystery throughout the Old Testament. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That says to me that the riches of Christ, these blessings we're talking about, are outside of my reach. They come to me not through my investigation, not through my determination. They come to me through God's revelation. They're given to me by Him. The blessings we have in Christ are God's gift to the believing heart. Verse 10 tells us that God's plan to unite Jew and Gentile in one church was a mystery even to the angels. But God gave to Paul the task of sharing this secret. You know, the gospel is one secret we should never keep to ourselves. My wife always gets on to me, I can't keep a secret. She stopped telling me what we buy the kids for Christmas. I end up telling them two or three days ahead of time. But you know what? The gospel is one secret I can share. I don't have to worry about keeping it a secret. We can shout it from the rooftops. What a joy it is to be able to share the love of Jesus. If I ask you to name the ultimate experience, what would it be? 
Well, Sandy, what about flying to the moon? That would be pretty cool. That would be out of this world. What about climbing Mount Everest? What about a trip around the world? That would be an ultimate experience. What about going with the high school and junior high school up to Virginia? That would be an ultimate experience. Well, to Paul, the ultimate experience was an encounter with God. And he describes such an encounter in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. He prays for us. He says that we should be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. This is what God wants for you. This is what Paul prays for you. That you would be strengthened with God's might by His Spirit in your inner man. Through prayer, we can draw internal strength from an eternal source. What a blessing. What an incredible experience to experience God's might in our hearts. He adds that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, He wants Jesus to be at home in your heart. Is He? Is Jesus at home in your heart tonight? Paul wants Jesus to be at home in our hearts even if that means He has to make a few changes to do so. He prays again that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul wants us to go beyond just a basic understanding of God's love and he wants us to grasp the full volume of his love for us. And finally, Paul asks that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul wants every pore of every part of your life saturated with the influence of God. That's the kind of experience I want. And after praying such a wonderful prayer, Paul leaves it up to the Lord to do even more. In verse 20, he praises God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He can make it even more incredible than we can imagine. Hey, the ultimate experience is an encounter with God. In Christ Jesus, you and I have the most prestigious position on earth. You're a child of God. President. Prime Minister. Premier. Pope. All pales in comparison with being a child of God. You remember back in 1974, Richard Nixon resigned as the President of the United States. Gerald Ford took his place. Nixon did all the work to become the President. He shook the hands, he kissed the babies, and he did a few other things that got him into trouble. Ford, on the other hand, did absolutely nothing. But when Gerald Ford was sworn in, we all expected him to do a good job, didn't we? Likewise, you've done nothing to become a child of God. Jesus has done all the work for you. You're in office on his coattails. Your position's a free gift. It's the result of God's grace. But now that you're one of his children, he wants you to live like one. And that's why he says to us in Ephesians 4 verse 1, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And verse 2 tells us that this high calling, it demands a lowly walk. We're to walk in lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. I love verse 3. It adds, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
You know, the unity that we experience, it's not our manufacturing. It's the work, it's the product of the Holy Spirit. But once the Holy Spirit births it, it is up to us to maintain it. We're told to keep this unity intact. Don't let hurt feelings, don't let misunderstandings between brothers and sisters, don't let jealousies threaten our unity. Be humble, be patient, bear with one another. And when a contention arises, hey, talk to each other, work it out. Verse 4 reminds us, when God looks on the world, He sees only one church made up of many true believers from many different churches. He says there is one body and one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Let's keep the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, tell us what Jesus did for the three days and three nights that his body lay in Joseph's tomb. Paul says that his spirit descended to Hades, where he rescued the saints who had believed in his coming beforehand. Jesus took these captives captive to himself, and he ushered them into the presence of the Father in heaven. But Jesus wasn't done. After doing that, he gave gifts to men, and men as gifts. He gave the church gifted leaders, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and he still gives leaders to the church. Jesus equips the church with men who can equip the church. And notice the pastor's job in verse 12 of chapter 4. My job is the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You know, many people divide the members of the church up into the ministers and the laity. The ministers do all the ministering and the laity just lay around. (laughs) But that's not the way God sees it. It's not my job to do all the ministering. It's my job to equip you so that you can go out and do the work of the ministry. Every member should be a minister. I believe the greatest need in the church today is for men to teach God's people God's word. Too often we preach to save sinners rather than to strengthen saints. God's plan is for the pastor to prepare the people than for the people to reach the world. And when a pastor's priority is to teach God's word, the saints are no longer tossed to and fro and carried about with every faddish and every false doctrine that blows their way. Rather, they experience steady growth and they reach spiritual maturity. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul encourages the Ephesians to put off the old man and to put on the new man. He says in verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Guys, when we come to Christ, our spirits, the inner man is transformed, but the mind needs to be renewed. We need to adopt a Christian mindset, Christian values, see things from a Christian perspective. We need to hang up the old attitudes and we need to adopt new ones. We need to stop thinking like a heathen. And we need to focus in on who we are in Christ. If you see yourself as a Christian, if you think Christian thoughts, if you view yourself as a child of God, trust me, you'll be more likely to live like one. Ephesians 5 closes with some important, or begins with, Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, closes with some important instructions. Verse 26, don't go to bed angry. Work it out. 
Don't give time for your anger to turn to bitterness. Verse 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. If you're an alcoholic, don't meet somebody in a bar. Don't walk head first into temptation. And when the devil knocks, make sure you let Jesus answer. Verse 29, watch your language. When I travel, you know, it doesn't take long for people to realize that I'm from the South. I just open my mouth. And my accent gives me away. Likewise, people should know that we're Christians the moment we open our mouth. Clean up your corrupt communication. Season your speech with grace and encouragement. Verse 30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't frustrate. Don't fail to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. Walk in the Holy Spirit. Don't hinder Him. Finally, verse 32 tells us forgiving one another. And you know, if Paul had just left it at that, it would be easy. But Paul adds to that a soul-searching comment. He says, forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. Whoa, baby. That just upped the ante. You mean to tell me I'm supposed to give you, forgive you as fully and freely as God has forgiven me? That's exactly what he's saying. Ephesians 5 verse 2 instructs us, Walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. My college psychology book defines love as an agitated state of psychological arousal. Guys, go home tonight and whisper to your wife, Baby, you agitate my brain. See where that gets you. But an agitated state of psychological arousal, is that all there is to love? A burning brainwave? An emotion? A feeling? No, Jesus taught us what love is. He taught us that love is a commitment. That love is giving. It's offering. It's sacrificing. You know, real love transforms takers into givers. He says, walk in love as Christ has loved us. On the other hand, fornication or sex outside of marriage is more lust than love. Verse 3 says that it shouldn't even be named among believers. Verse 4 adds filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting to the list of behaviors that are inappropriate for Christians. If Paul were writing today, he would put it, disinfect your potty mouth. Flush your bathroom humor away. Don't be gross. Rather be godly. According to verse 8, if you're in Christ, you're no longer in darkness. A Christian is like a glow-in-the-dark frisbee. We absorb the presence of God and then we diffuse that light into a dark world. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Rather than laugh at sin, rather than be entertained by corrupt things, we should expose it. We should want to drive it out. Verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. The word circumspectly means to be careful where you place your feet. In other words, guys, we need to watch. We need to look. We need to think before we take a step. Years ago, after the PTL scandal, Jim Baker made the comment, 
It's amazing how 15 minutes can ruin your life. Think before you act. And be careful how you spend your time. You've got very little of it left. I hope you know that. In verse 16, Paul says, Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Time is running out on all of us. And there's much left to be done for God's kingdom. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you've been trying to determine the will of God for your life, verses 17 and 18 give you the answer. Paul writes, understand what the will of the Lord is. Here he is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. A life that counts for God is a life that's intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. We all need to be driving under the Spirit's influence. You know, wine makes us giddy by dulling our senses. But the Spirit produces joy in our hearts by heightening our senses and making us more aware of God's presence. That's why a person filled with the Holy Spirit will also be full of praise and thanks to God, speaking to one another, making melody in his heart, giving thanks always. And notice verse 21. If we're filled with the Spirit, we will be submitting to one another in the fear of God. We'll put the other guy's needs before our own. Verse 22 and 23, or verse 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 33, talk about marriage. And it says a lot. It talks about the specialized roles of the husband and the wife. But I want you to notice all that's said about marriage is prefaced here by verse 21. Marriage needs to be founded on a mutual submission between two believers. It's been said two people can't make a successful marriage until they get a divorce from themselves. It's only when we submit to one another and put the other person's needs before our own can any of the rest of this in this chapter make sense. And speaking of marriage, Paul prescribes for marriage, for the marriage relationship, what I call an ordered equality. In verse 22, the wife is to submit to her husband. In verse 23, the husband is head over his wife. That doesn't mean that men are any better than women. The arrangement is not based on male superiority as if there was such a thing. God considers men and women as equals. But he has given each of us a specific role to play in the relationship. The husband's responsibility is to lead. The wife's responsibility is to follow. This word submit in verse 22 is the Greek word hupotasso, which means to arrange under. Submission doesn't mean that a wife can't have a life. But it means that she will arrange her life around her husband. Billy's wife, Ruth Graham, expresses Paul's intent with the advice she gives to young girls. She says, marry someone you don't don't mind adjusting to, for God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Hey, a human body comes with one head, not two. And likewise, a marriage that works, that's successful, it will occur when the wife lets her husband lead and the husband loves his wife. 
often we think a wife has the more difficult job to be submissive to her husband as the church is submissive to Christ. But not in, after you read verse 25. That sort of sets, the, sets it back on course for us. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Hey, it's easier for a woman to submit to a man when she knows that that man's going to love her sacrificially like Christ loves the church. It's a lot tougher to be submissive to a selfish fellow than it is someone who puts his wife first. And verses 25 through 30 tell us how Christ loves the church and how husbands in turn ought to love their wives. Jesus sacrifices for his church. He sanctifies his church. He glorifies his church. And he prizes or cherishes his church. Husbands, are you doing that for your wife? Are you sacrificing for her? Are you cleansing her with your words? Are you glorifying her and sharing your successes with her? Are you cherishing her and prizing her? It's been said, treat your wife like a thoroughbred and she'll never be a nag. Verse 31 is taken from Genesis. And it tells us how to build a strong marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice here the three musts of a marriage. Leave mama and daddy. Don't keep running home while you're trying to build a home. Cleave to your spouse. Burn the bridges. Don't keep threatening to walk out every time things get tough. Sit down and talk it out. And then weave together a new life. Learn to think and act and work in sync. Here's the three must of a marriage. Leave, cleave, and weave. And you'll conceive a happy marriage. The first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 6 revolutionized the social order of the Roman world. Every culture expected children and slaves to obey, but there was no reciprocal responsibility for parents and masters. Christianity changed all that. Paul says to parents in verse 4, And you fathers, do not frustrate or provoke your children to wrath. Fathers and mothers should be careful not to frustrate their kids. Guys, lower your expectations. Be consistent. Don't tease. Sit down and listen to your kids. Watch being overprotective. And always remember how children spell love. T-I-M-E. Paul tells parents to bring up their kids in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training means discipline. Admonition means encouragement. Bring up your kids with correction and direction, with equipping and whipping. As Martin Luther said, they need the rod and the apple, a rod of correction, but as well a nod of approval. But Paul also places a reciprocal responsibility on masters or employees. I'm sorry, employers. Yes, again, a slave was required to obey his boss. He says, don't just... 
go through the motions when you're on the job. If you're an employee, do your job well. As Paul puts it in verse 6, with eye service as men pleasers. That's how a lot of people work. With eye service. When the boss is around, when he's looking, I'll work. But as soon as he leaves the room, it's party time. That's with eye service. As men pleasers don't work that way. A Christian has a higher authority. Whatever we do, we need to be working for the Lord. We need to do it as unto Him. But likewise, the boss also has a responsibility to treat his workers fairly. And in verse 9, we're reminded that every boss has a boss. One day we'll all answer to Jesus Christ. Paul teaches us to sit and to walk, but also to stand against the devil. And you know, there's a vital lesson in this one word, stand. God hasn't called us so much to gain ground as He has to stand our ground. In Christ, the victory has already been won. All we need to do is to stand our ground. Follow the Lord's instructions and He will do the work. And yet taking a stand is not always easy. Satan is slippery. He has his bag of tricks. We're told to be careful, to watch against the wiles of the devil. Those wiles include doubt and jealousy and fear and condemnation and deception and guilt and discouragement and dissension and compromise. And on and on the list goes. You see, Satan's strategy is to use what he can to divert your attention off of who you are and what you have in Christ. Rather than sitting and walking and standing, he wants you fidgeting and racing around and wandering and snoozing. Satan wants to knock you out of your faith position and therefore rob you of your blessings in Christ. To counter Satan's attacks, Paul tells us to strap on the armor of God. Verse 14 mentions the belt of truth. Satan will try to manipulate our emotions. That's why we need to make sure that our emotions are surrounded by God's truth. Walk by faith, not by feeling. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure you want what God wants for you. God knows what's right. He knows what's best. Clothe your desires with His righteousness. Verse 15 tells us to put on sandals of peace. The Roman soldiers wore shoes that were like cleats. When they fought on rocky terrain, they needed a steady base. And likewise, the peace of God serves as our base. Don't get confused with what you don't know. Hold on to what you do know. And allow God's peace to rule in your heart. Verse 16 tells us to grab the shield of faith. At times, Satan will shoot a flurry of fiery darts in our direction. In those moments, we just need to hunker down in faith until the attack is over. Hide behind that shield of faith. And then verse 17, strap on the helmet of salvation. In other words, fix your mind, fix your thoughts on the things that are of God, the things that are godly. And then pick up the two offensive weapons that we find in verses 17 and 18. The blade and the bomb. The word of God in prayer. Through prayer we bomb the strongholds of Satan. We knock them down. We destroy his fortifications. And then we walk in with the word and we take possession of the spoils. Finally, notice Paul never mentions any protection for the back. And that's because there's no reason for us to retreat. We need to be strong in the Lord and stand against the devil. You know, the French Foreign Legion has a motto. If I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. 
If I retreat, shoot me. That ought to be our motto. In the spiritual battle, never, never, never retreat. Remember, our adversary, the devil, is a defeated foe. Jesus has won the victory on the cross. It's time for us to join the battle. And there we have the book of Ephesians. Whew! We made it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the glorious riches, the treasures that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us tonight as we go home. Lord, to take this week to just go back through this book, especially the first several chapters, and just reread all that we have, all that you've done for us. Help us to grasp the hope of our calling, the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding power that you've made available to us. Help us, Lord, to live in light of the blessings we have in Christ. Help us to learn to sit to position ourselves in Christ Jesus, then to walk worthy of that calling and to stand against the devil. Work in our hearts, work in our lives, make us the people you want us to be. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.